Hey everybody, we are super pleased to announce our new sponsor, Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. The goal? Power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. And the best part? Marvel Strike Force just reached its six-year anniversary, which means free stuff when you sign up via our unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. Just complete each event, and you'll receive special awards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and every week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. If we have received a unique promo code for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL, M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Again, anybody uses that code, it is unique for all new users. Check it out. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Podcast about board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. Hey, uh, this is Anthony. And this is episode 389, top 10 worst rule books of all time. We'd like to thank all our Patreon backers for helping us bring you a brand new episode. All right, friends, we are back. And sadly enough, we are talking about the worst rule books of all time. Right, Anthony? Yeah, yeah, this is the most common frustration, I think, in, in any board game, is learning mm-hmm. the rules and finding that the very specific component in that box that is designed to teach you the rules is terrible. And if there's not a Rodney Smith video, <laughs> how do you play the game if the rulebook is terrible? So these are 10 games or sets of games that uh, are most egregiously break that very, very important rule of you got to be able to learn the game. <laughs> like, if you can't learn the game, you can't play the game. Yeah, I, I think every time I read a bad rule book, I always think back to that line in Beetlejuice where they're reading the book, The Living and the Dead, how they're going to work together. And they say, this thing reads like stereo instructions. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I feel like sometimes when I read rule books, in fact, it does, it does read like stereo instructions. And I'm just like, and how did you get a? How did you get to produce this game? How did that happen? And honestly, this is—I—I'm I, going to say it. I think this is the number one reason why designer board gaming has been limited or has failed to kind of cross over to the public in any seriously meaningful way. Because I know even myself, having read so many rule books. there are games that come across, and I start going through a rule book, and I'm just like, I can't. Like this doesn't no. work. 
Yeah. And it's just like, I'm going to pack this up and put it in the closet. And I remember as a kid doing the same thing. Like, I, I really want to play this game. I'm like enthusiastic. I have a high reading comprehension above and beyond my grade. And then just like slamming into like a rule book and just going, okay, well, I'm done now. Yeah. No, it, it's it's such a frustrating thing. And like like you said, we read a lot of rules. I've read hundreds possibly thousands of rule books yeah i can tell you within five minutes of opening a rule book if i'm going to be able to learn the rules from it or not sure and it will very quickly i'll get through the first page and be like you know what i'm gonna look up a video it's just not worth it i prefer to read i learn better that way personally than watching it but if i can't even start to piece together the format of the game in that first page or two then i'm like nope this is bad so there's a lot of rule books that break that kind of golden rule. It's surprising. It happens less now because there are people who professionally write and edit rule books for these designers and these developers, but it still happens. And I don't know. It's, it's astounding when it does. Yeah. And I think it happens in a lot of industries as well. So both of us are in academia and we both read a lot of journal articles. And a lot of times these are absolute genius of people's, who are putting these kind of different research studies together and then they don't have somebody who specializes in writing and then every, the communication breaks down dramatically and then we're in a bad place right, right there and then. So it's, it's not just a board game tabletop game kind of situation. And again, I think, Anthony, as you mentioned, like board games, I mean, RPGs, do we, do we have to even mention all the challenges reading through an RPG source book or player's guide or something like that? I mean, again, how many how many books do you own? RPG books, like right? Because <laughs> you just you just end up collecting them because the theme and the story sounds so rich and wonderful to get involved in, and then you read the book and you're just like, ah, nope, putting this back on the shelf. Yeah, and it never comes out. <laughs> yeah, we're not even touching on that stuff. That's that's a whole other level of frustration. Oh no, that is no. And I and again, last little bit on this too. You or I may, again, you might kind of like come around or read a Ronnie, you know, Ronnie Smith video online or read through some texts or some reviews or follow Anthony on all the stuff that he does. But honestly, if you are one of the people like myself who just ends up teaching the game, there's nothing more anxiety producing at a game night as like stumbling through a rule book to try to figure out and try to teach a game to other people. It really, it diminishes tremendously the experience of like, I read this, now let's play it. Let me teach it to you. Damn it, the rule book, let's go back. I don't know where it is. I can't find it. I'm teaching the game. It's it's, it's a moment, man. It really is. Yeah, absolutely. So hopefully these, this list will kind of guide you around those tremendous potholes so that you know that what kind of resources and support you need moving forward. But Anthony, obviously, the most important thing that we want to know is what our listeners out there are listening to and what they're thinking about this important question of the week. All right. So I asked everybody, uh, specifically, enough of the terrible rule books. What are the very best rule books you've encountered? There you um, go. Rodney Smith videos don't count. So let's <laughs> clarify. Written rules for those who don't want to watch a video. So uh, we've got a, a bunch of good answers here. Um, Tommy Ray has a nice long answer which I really liked. He says, in general, ones where words mean things. They are used the same way every time and mean the same thing every time. 
Uh, this is not creative English writing. Precise language is a must. He gives an example of war chest in which maneuver means a thing and move means a different thing. It's very clearly laid out and succinct in the rules. Uh, you know, in a creative writing class, they might be synonyms, but in a rule book, that would be bad. So uh, this is a common issue that we see in rule books where the terminology won't be said. And that's just a thing that comes through in editing. Like you've got to make it clear. This is what this term means. This is what this term means. This is when I use this term. This is when I use this term. These terms are not so close to each other that I'm going to get them mixed up, which happens a lot. And so, yeah, Tommy's point is spot on. Um, Andy mentions Jaws of the Lion being excellent for introducing the elements a bit at a time. We're going to have uh, an episode in a couple of weeks where we talk about the best rule books. And this is like one of the big things you can do to make a good rule book is to layer in rules a little bit at a time. Now that works best in games that have like a progressive element, either a campaign or just building complexity, like in co-op games or a dungeon crawls, but just in general, like layering in rules as people get to know the game. Very, very effective. Uh, also mentions loving the way Arc Nova's reference guide translates the cards to keep it simple English. So not overcomplicating things on the basics. Um, James mentions a game that I haven't played or even really seen in person. Um, Assassin's Creed Brotherhood of Venice. So there's a glossary, there's cross references from pages to in-game components and vice versa. And it's generally easy to read. I wish all rule books were this well laid out. So that's, I'll have to check that one out, James. Um, Chad mentions Lisboa has a fantastic rule book for a heavy game. I would argue that most of the uh, Lacerda games have pretty decent rule books. Considering how complex those games are and how much is going on, I can learn how to play those games by reading the rule book once through, which... I cannot say for much simpler games in my collection. So that's a good thing. Um, Roman mentions Vlada Shavadal games. We're going to get to that in a minute. I think Vlada Shavadal's rule writing is controversial in some spheres, but he does mention Space Alert being one that's very long, but very entertaining. So some good ones, you know, we're not going to expand on this too much because again, we have an episode coming up with our favorites, but there are a lot of very good rule books out there. So we want to put that out there. They're not all bad. We're not just dumping on everybody. There are a <laughs> lot of very good rules writers out there. And um, it's not always necessary to go find a video. No, absolutely. And the rule books are there to help you and guide you through all the little nuances that you need to know for the game. So mm-hmm. yeah, we'll absolutely celebrate all those great rule book writers pretty soon. And so keep up with us on all our social medias because you still have an opportunity to let us know about your favorite rule books and maybe we'll be able to add those to the upcoming episode. All right, Anthony. So that's everything that's happening with us. Let's get on to the games that we want to hit the table. Let's talk about our acquisition disorders. All right. So I am excited about a game. Uh, it's a new one from Mac Gertz that I've heard of this young while... man. Have you? Hmm, interesting. <laughs> Sounds familiar. He of Concordia fame, uh, among Uh other things. Uh He released a game uh, several years ago, like way back in 2017, called Transatlantic, that I was Mm. very excited about and then ended up not really liking very much. It was a car-driven game about the shipping industry, the 20th century, the turn of the 20th century. And it was 
fairly card driven, right? There was no map really. You were laying cards out in certain locations on a shared space and then kind of collecting them. It was borderline deck building with shipping elements attached. It just, it felt like something was missing from the game. It didn't quite work in several Mm. ways. Like there's a lot of really cool ideas there, but it just didn't quite come together. But not too long ago, he mentioned that he was working on Transatlantic 2. And that has apparently morphed into a completely different game called Crossing Oceans, which Mm. is coming out at the end of this year. And this is a game that does have a board and does involve moving across (laughs) like a large shared space. It's a a world map. You're laying out these different cards. And so once again, it's a game about the golden era of ocean liners. But now you have a lot more things kind of going on here. There's a rondelle because you got to have a rondelle. Um, (laughs) uh, You're going to be putting ships on the boards or taking contracts, using those contracts to take various different actions, choosing actions on the rondelle itself. And so instead of being a card driven game, which is what the first game was transatlantic, which is not to say that Matt Gertz can't make a great card driven game, right? Concordia is his best game. It's card driven even if it is a little bit like a rondelle. But the rondelle itself features so prominently in so many of his games. Like Antique 2 is my favorite of his games, and that's super rondelle. So I'm excited for this. I wanted to like Transatlantic. I I played it like two or three times, and it just didn't click for me. And so when I knew he was making a second iteration, I got really excited. Because again, Antique 2 is very good. And Antique, the original I never played, but by all accounts, it was fine. Right. Um, So Crossing Oceans looks very interesting. I like the theme. I love bringing in the 50 different historical ships. Um, I love introducing a rondelle mechanic. I love the map. It's big and beautiful. Um, And it's still looking like a 60 to 90 minute game. So I'm going to track this one down. Super excited to play it and probably coming out, you know, in Germany first. And then maybe we'll see it next year. But yeah, Crossing Oceans from Matt Gertz. Looking good. Nice. Who doesn't like a, a good Matt Gertz game? Yeah, I w- just show them to me, and I will convert them because they're, they're good games. <laughs> and he he certainly has a unique quality. And, and I go back to I guess Imperium, and mm. Imperium twenty something or another, and that was a significant improvement. Yes, and it. It's just, I really appreciate the fact that he would go that far to go back and kind of like, well, this was okay, but I can really just not make it a little bit better, but I can completely redesign it. Yeah. So, or even just like Concordia, which he hasn't, Mm -hmm. there's no second edition, but like you look at things like some of those maps or, you know, Salsa or Venus, like they really change the core formula without changing the core idea. Mm. And it works really well. Nice. All right. Well, talking about being excited, I, I guess, was something that I never thought I would say, to be honest, is a, a game on Kickstarter currently called Rivet Wars Reloaded. Now, <laughs> Rivet Wars is a game that we talked about way back on episode 26. This is way back to 2014. So I'm not going to go over too much about what River Wars is. Listen to episode 26. Listen to our younger years with... Uh, Daniel and Drew as we kind of play through that game and I'll give you a better sense of it but primarily Rivet Wars was a game that was previously on Kickstarter and it was a interesting light skirmish game that utilized 
I don't know how you would just say it. like uh, the theming was alternate universe World War One esque steampunk and chibi miniatures. So if you put all that together, you kind of get River Wars. Now, this was, again, since this is so far back, this was back in the day where Kickstarters were like this really unique, wondrous kind of product that only certain games could get out there to the market by utilizing Kickstarter. And River Wars was one of the first major campaigns with like endless amounts of plastic and miniatures and expansions and things like like you were paying like four or five hundred dollars and this was back again way way back when and i remember being fascinated by the campaign but it was another one of those situations where you had to drop an exceptionally large amount of money to get everything in the game but they were smart enough to include so many different kickstarter backer golds exclusive little things in here and there that it was very tempting in fact, I remember seeing one of the board game magazines back in the day, again, when they was, used to be more of a thing, and they had like a, they showed pictures of like fully painted sets. And that's really where, where it kind of got me when I got to see the full painted sets. I never backed the Kickstarter because, again, it was a lot of money for a lot of cool miniatures. And again, back in the day, it was Simon. And I was like, this is good. It's Simon. Well, I guess it was cool mini or not at the time. But I couldn't make that kind of commitment. I did eventually back the base box when I think it went on sale. It went from like $100 to $50. I remember backing that and being like, I can't believe this is $50. And now obviously we know that's kind of a thing that happens all the time. But of course, you're not getting all the little extra Kickstarter backer stuff that eventually will drive you insane and cost you all the monies in the world. Played the base game, liked the base game, liked the idea of that kind of steampunk World War One mech kind of, you know, trench warfare where you're trying to score points in order to win and you're trying to achieve objectives throughout. And it had this really cool rivet mechanic where obviously you're getting rivets to be able to put out units. So the more rivets you get, the different units you get to put on the board. And it has this kind of like Memoir 44 aspect to it where based upon what units fighting what units, it may be effective or not effective at all. So putting a foot soldier versus some sort of giant tech mech is not going to be to your benefit, but there are other units that do better against other units. So cool game, really cool miniatures, has this plug and play aspect to it where you have tanks and you have planes and things like this, and you're able to plug in additional guns or additional captains or soldiers or pilots or things like that that will kind of boost up the stats of that particular unit. Really like that. That was revolutionary for the time. And over the years, they've obviously dumped a lot of it onto the market. And I picked up probably everything for about 50% off, but I never did pick up all the little extras. And back then, Simon was really smart. So a lot of those extras were really cool. They were like, kind of like, you know, all the different zombie games that came out where it's like, oh, this is a legally distinct character that we can use. So I never caught up and I never got that crazy with River Wars. I picked up all the other stuff. So when I heard that they were rebooting, relaunching, reskinning, in some cases, uh, River Wars, I was kind of excited about that. Now, what's interesting is that this is not coming out from Kulmini or not. This is actually coming out from Steamforge Games. They produced a lot of great games. And we have an episode coming up about that. So I won't get too deep into that. 
But primarily what you're going to be able to do with this campaign, and there's only going to be a couple of days left when you hear this episode. This is actually a very short campaign. Not really sure why it was this short, but uh, the campaign runs out on Friday, September 10th. So probably by the time you hear this, you'll probably have about four or five days left. So if you want to check this out, check it out on Kickstarter. But basically, it gives you an opportunity to purchase Rivet Wars. But with this, you'll also be able to purchase a game that has, again, some additional stretch goals, not as crazy as Simon once was. But they've done a lot of things to make this a little bit better in some cases. Have not played the game, have not previewed the game, can't speak to the gameplay other than the original, original Rivet Wars. So again, go back to that previous episode. But what they're going to do with this game is they up the, the production quality according to them. I don't see it radically different, but they did make some, I guess, additions to miniatures. So now your cool, you know, units have beards for some reason. <laughs> um, I don't know. They, they 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 show two comparison characters. I'm like, they look fine. They look the same. Like, but he's got a beard. I'm like, all right, Anthony's got a beard, so yes, he looks cooler than me. <laughs> The game book itself supposedly is updated and looks better, and a lot of the graphic designs on the cards are supposedly better. Again, I look back and forth. I don't notice any kind of major difference other than it's different. The first rule book was fine, and so was the cards. I didn't really notice anything radically different there, so that didn't really throw me. What I do like to see here, of course, is unlike many other Kickstarters, and you know who you are out there, this one understands the fact that you purchased the previous products. You can back it as a veteran and get the new rule book, get the new cards, get some of the new pieces and not have to repurchase the core box. Everything is uh, backwards, you know, compatible. So if you own anything previous of, of this, this will still carry over. So you might want to be able to pick up the new cards because again, maybe they streamline some, some numbers or some units. And again, they don't say this here on the Kickstarter, that's just an assumption of mine, playing a lot of miniature games. Star Wars did this. Star Trek has done this. All the different games have done this where they're like, hey, remember that meta that we had at, we put out there? It was really broken, so let's give you something new. I'm not saying this is true here, but they are saying that there is some some changes to some of the units. So maybe that's some something that might be interesting to you. There is also a brand new faction that's involved in the game. Basically, it's blue versus red. It's allies versus blight, I believe. And now there's a brand new faction that comes into play that looks like this kind of Greek mythological, again, steampunk kind of faction. And that's cool. It's always cool to have another faction, another color. Big fan of green myself, so always love to have that. Supposedly there's some different gameplay here. It doesn't seem to be radically different than anything new. Now, here's the problem. <laughs> it's price. Now, if you can pick up the older expand older expansions and even the base box it's far cheaper to do that and probably pick up the veteran pledge that will give you all the new updates without the additional costs now that being said you might like your miniatures to have beards and different card design so maybe you want to go for an all-in pledge an all-in pledge is going to cost you about 451 dollars us american and again, there's a, a bunch of different variations of that that you could pick up, whether you're just picking up the core box or something like that. The problem with these campaigns generally is it promises that certain elements of these campaigns will not be reproduced or sold outside of the campaign. So if you don't want to back the full thing, you are going to buy back a product that is going to be missing pieces that you will never be able to get in the future. Is that bad? Probably not, because the base box 
is pretty much full of enough stuff to play the game as a two-player skirmish game. But again, a lot of the fun of these games is all the different miniatures, all the different factions, all the different units that come into play. It does add a level to complexity. When you play the base game, you kind of get used to what each character does and what special abilities they have. Once you add the other stuff, you have to kind of like keep updating yourself as far as like, oh, that unit does this, this one does that. So I'm looking at this. I am not sure if I'm going to go ahead and actually pull the trigger on this one because I do like the game. I do recommend the game. I did purchase the game. I've kept the game throughout all the years. I also own Memoir 44, which is, of course, different, but somewhat in, in somewhat the same as far as a two-player skirmish. River Wars is a lot lighter and friendlier for more of a light gamer audience. This is not a family game. Don't let the cuteness kind of surprise you. You can't put this in front of family members and just be like, sure, your armor units don't hit against my error units. Like, that's just never going to work with families or just new gamers. Like, this is a game for gamers. It just happens to be cute and adorable, and it has to have a... I would say for them, it has a reasonable gateway entry versus something like Memoir 44, which is a lot more intense, a little more complex, and strategies a little more detailed. This is a very small board trying to obtain objectives. Cool. Rivet Wars Reloaded. I think it's worth taking a look at. Again, you might want to buy it, the original version, but this is definitely take a look at because it's 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 a good set. It's a good series. It's a good mechanic. And I and again, just just like Simon did before, you know, I, I think this is being handled properly by a good company. Yeah, I'm excited. I uh we played this a million years ago. Like it was like episode twenty five or something. Um we reviewed the game and twenty six. Twenty six. Oh, I was so close. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh and you know, the game kind of disappeared and faded away because that was early cool meaning or not and then they got yes. all the monies with arcadia <laughs> quest and then zombicide and they're like all the old stuff who cares sure. um and so it's cool that a that it's coming back and b it's mm-hmm. coming back from someone else who's going to support it more fully yeah the downside of course is the cost because now it's triple than what it was it's yeah 10 and years it, ago and the shipping too we can't forget right. the shipping now these days right 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 so if you if you're willing to go without the extras which i did you could probably get it a lot cheaper once it hits retail, especially when most online companies will give you free shipping. And again, this is a lot of plastic. So that alone might save you all the monies in the world. <laughs> right. All right, everyone. So that's the games we want to hit the table. Let's talk about the games that did hit the table. And we'll let you know if those games are a buy and you should run out and pick those games up. If those games are a play and you should sit down and play them. If those games are a dodge and you should avoid them. Or in fact, those games are a burn. And we'll talk about it in a minute. Burning comes into this game, into these reviews a lot. So, Anthony, what do you have up for us this week? All right. So, I got a chance to play Founders Teotihuacan. Uh, uh-huh. This is the unfortunately named spinoff of Plainly Teotihuacan. Um, not designed by Tashini. This is actually designed by Philip Glowich, who has worked for Board and Dice for a long time. We know him because he was like our point of contact and worked in marketing for a while. And now he's designing games for them. Um, so this is, there's really not a lot in common with that original game, except for the theming, right? It still has like the kind of general look and feel aesthetically speaking as a like same font, 
same like graphic design of the components. Um, the rulebook looks very similar. It's a little bit, little better written than the original rulebook, but it's a simpler game. Um, the mechanics of this one, however, are a, very different, right? It's a tile laying game. Um, has some other stuff going on, but generally speaking, you have a tableau in front of you. You are laying tiles out, and you are trying to generate the most points from those tiles. So on your turn, you will take your action discs. You're going to start the game with six of them, and you will place them on one of... It depends on the number of players, but there's three different areas, and they can have between two and four available spots. And you'll place your discs there. If you're the first person to go somewhere, you get a bonus. Anybody who goes there after you will stack their discs on top of your discs, and they do not get the bonus because the bonus is now covered up. You can only have four total power on each of those spots. The bonus disc counts, so there can only be three regular discs stacked. So if I want to take a four power action and a space is empty, I will place three discs down on a location. If I want to take a four power action and somebody else has already placed two discs somewhere else, I place one on top of theirs. So there's it, that's probably the most interesting part of the game is the worker placement element of it because people don't block the spaces. They actually make them more powerful for you. Uh, so anytime someone takes an action, if they don't fill it up completely, you can go there and now your action is more powerful. And that's cool. I like that. Um, when you take the actions, generally there's two types of things you can do. You can either build stuff or you can kind of float around and do other basic things. So the building is there are buildings that produce resources. Um, if they have names in the book, I don't remember what they are because they're just polyomidos that correspond to the color of the resources. So there's stone, wood, and gold. You place those in your personal tableau, and then any empty spaces around those pieces, you place the resources. So if you take a five-size um, tile, like a T-shape, then you could end up placing like up to eight resources around it if you have enough space around it to do so. Um, there are also masks on your personal board. If you cover up all the masks in a given area, you get a mask tile. Those are worth points. There are temple tiles. <clears throat> These are all the same shape. And they do not generate resources, but they get you scoring tiles. So every time you build a temple, you get to take one of the scoring tiles, you put it in front of you. And then with a the future action, you can complete the scoring tile if you've met the conditions of it. And then, of course, because it's Teotihuacan, there's a pyramid you can build in the middle. Um, but it doesn't have the cool little, you know, the, the wooden tiles because everybody's building their own pyramid. It's just little cardboard tiles. Uh, and these are going to help you score points based on where you've built buildings throughout your tableau. So, you know, if you have a bunch of different buildings, like blue temples in one corner, you want to make sure that the pyramid tiles in that corner are blue as well, because you'll score more points that way. And that's basically it. You know, there's little single piece tiles you can place out. There's a track at the bottom that doesn't really do anything except give you points and let you swap out your point cards. I think... It was used once in the first game I played, total, among everybody. It's not really a space you go unless you have nothing else to do. Um, the game uses the eclipse markers, similar to the original. And each time you shorten the game, you take one of your action tiles away. So each round is a little bit shorter. There's less actions to take. And so it accelerates, right? So early on, you're taking a lot of actions, kind of setting yourself up, building your tableau. And then towards the end of the game, it just 
it, it ends much faster. Uh, it's fun. I had a lot of fun with it. I honestly, I was worried that it would. I don't. I think the founders of Gloomhaven Curse, which that game was not great, and it was attached to a very good game, and so there were expectations that went with that. It also had polyominoes. I don't know why they named this Founders of Teotihuacan. It's not a good name, <laughs> like because of Founders of Gloomhaven. It's still a good game, though. Like I still found it interesting and enjoyable. Um, it plays fairly quickly, less than an hour. The mechanic of trying to match map out when you're going to place your um, action discs based on where other people are going, so you can maximize the value of the discs you have and get the most possible actions out of them is a very cool idea. I like that. I would like to see more like worker placement games use that idea where you're like powering up a location and and then eventually it's full. Right? Like at a certain point if you wait too long for it to get more powerful, someone could fill it up and then you can't take that action at all. So now you put yourself in a bad spot. Um very very cool in that regard. The polyomino part of it, it's there. I mean, it, I don't know what else you would do there. I don't think it's it, it, it doesn't feel puzzly to me. So people who are like, I don't like polyomino games. I don't like puzzles. It's not really that kind of game. Uh, there's like a little bit of that in trying to get the mask tiles, but mostly it's just they take up different amounts of space so that you can place the resources on your personal board and use those resources. Like, I don't even think you'd necessarily hate it, Chris, <laughs> like because of the polyominoes. Um, yeah, but yeah, it's relatively quick. I feel like it's lighter than the weight on BGG gives it, which is 2.8, but not too much. Um, and I'll, I'm going to keep, I'm going to hold on to it. Uh, this is a review copy that they sent, but I'm going to hold on to it because I do like it a little bit more than I expected to. So that's Founders of Teotihuacan, designed by Philip Klawich. Uh, and yeah, I, I'm going to give this one a very strong play. It's not quite a buy because I do have the original and there's a lot of games that use polyominoes more interestingly, but it does enough cool things that I'm excited to play it and I will hold on to my copy. Nice. So it, it, it finally breaks the dreaded founder's curse is what you're saying. Right. Yeah. The second game manages to pull it off. <laughs> um, it's funny. And maybe Philip might love founders of Gloomhaven. Maybe that's why he called it that. I don't know. I just think, it's still it seems... I, I it's still a tremendous mistake. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's I don't get it. It's just I mean you're bringing in baggage from another game and another series and another designer that you don't need to bring in. Um, I think and that the was... game is good on its own merits. It works. It works well. So why do that? <laughs> I, I, I I don't get it because again that when we when we think about board game history or at least Kickstarter history that was one of the. I don't know how to say, I don't know how to say this in the right way. Like it was honestly one of the most challenging, problematic failures, you know, of of Kickstarter, especially Isaac Childress, who had such a tremendous leg, you know, build a tremendous legacy, build a tremendous game, and just everything, everything, everything. I remember watching that on Kickstarter. I'm like, I like kick Gloomhaven, man. Gloomhaven is the best. I want to back this. I want to back this. I want to back this. And just like reading through this stuff and reading through the rule book, I was like, Ugh. and then not backing it. And I think it immediately, once it got out to backers, I don't think I remember a game in recent history drop harder or faster than that game. And then it was on, I, I, I guarantee what was it? Like once it got out to backers, it was like, as soon as it hit the market, it was like $12. Like they, yeah. they just, they couldn't give that game away. 
Yeah, there's a lot of things wrong with that game. Um, it's not on our list of worst rule books, but it was no. a very bad rule book. Mm-hmm. Like, like I got that game in. I was very excited. I like polyominoes. I mm-hmm. set it up. I tried to learn it two separate times. Mm. And that's usually the death knell for me. If I can't get through the rulebook the second <laughs> time, the game goes on the shelf forever or I toss it. Sure. And that's what happened. Like, I never ended up playing that game because... And I mean, I played through it like some rounds, but I never played with other people because the experience of trying to learn it was such a headache. And mm. then everything I heard from everybody else was like, it's not worth it. So yeah, I had several friends who had it and I was like, oh, you know, I've heard about it. Like, is it as bad as it is? Can we play it? And they were like, I don't want to play this. Like, I don't, I don't want to play it. I'm just <laughs> yeah. like, and I, and it was more than one person. I asked several people who had owned the game because again, Gloomhaven was such a big game that I think everyone ran out and bought it. So if you want to call it a marketing success, then it was successful. But as far as the game, it, I'm surprised. But I'm glad to see that you reviewed this because I would never have touched it if you did not. So I'm glad that that's actually out there. Yeah. Yeah, you should try it sometime. I don't know if you'll love it, but I don't think you'll hate it. So, <laughs> Well, speaking about names that feel like they're connected to a plague, let's talk about a game that <laughs> I did not at all want to play. And which is strange about this is because... Uh, one of the co-designers here is Vladimir Suchi. Vladimir Suchi is one of my, if not my favorite, board game designer of all times. And Messina 1347 that came out last year was a game that I was just, I was, I'm always excited to see one of his games come out. And then when I heard the theme here, which again was all about the Black Plague, huh, huh, I'm kind of done with plagues for the minute, so... Vladimir, please, can we can we do something else? You know, and ugh, and Italy, Italy was hit really hard by the pandemic, so could we not do that? And also, I'm Italian, so could we not just do that? But Messina 1347 is about the Black Plague and about Messina, Italy, and how the rich inhabitants, the, the Messina families, were able to support and save a lot of the families during that plague. Now that plague is best known for the, you know, blaming the rats, so to speak. But it was not the rats that were carrying the plague. Unfortunately, it was the fleas that were on the rats that were carrying the plague. And even more so, it was the ships that were carrying the rats over the sea to those cities. And Messina was one of the first cities that was hit. So I don't want to play a game like this, but it was Vladimir Suchi and a friend of mine had it and wanted to play that. And I'm always willing to play a game, even if it's not a theme that I'm into or a mechanic that I'm into. Um, again, you know, Vladimir Suchi, all his games I've I've loved up to this point. So I was happy to, you know, give it a chance. And Delicious Games was publishing this. Um, one of my favorite games of all time of his and the company is obviously Underworld City. So I was really excited to play it. So again, the game itself comes down to supporting the city during the outbreak of a plague And the city itself is made up of a bunch of different hexes that are randomly assembled based upon a formation that are given to you in the rulebook with four different ports that are placed on the corners. And this is where the ships come in. And you'll also bring plague along with it. So your job here is you are sending out your lieutenants in the game. I believe you start with three that start out there. And then throughout the game, you have an opportunity on based upon one of the tracks that to add two more lieutenants. So it's a standard worker placement game. Each of the hexes has an opportunity to get an action. The challenge with that action is that there may be plague there. So in order to take out the plague, you have to burn the plague. So you're, I guess you're burning rats as far as, as it's concerned. So 
there is a lot of like get resources in order to get resources, which is a standard resource game. But basically in this game, you need fire to burn out the plague. And if the plague is on one of those city tiles with one of the workers, the arsons, or I guess the 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 rich people over there, then those people are infected. And even though you burnt out the plague there, now you have to save the people from that city. Now you have your own particular player board. It's this really nice circle board. And your estate is where the people are going to stay. If they were on one of the tiles where there was plague, they can go to one of your quarantine zones and they will take two rounds to be cured or healed, so to speak. If they were not infected by the plague on that particular square, when you take those different citizens, you'll be able to put them into your state, which is this really intricate round board with a number of different squares. And by putting these different people into the squares next to the spaces where there's an activity, as you move your different, um, I guess it would be your different powers throughout the game, your three different, you know, little discs that you're able to learn, you'll be able to activate the different people in your estate to gain a special ability. Most of these are resources. Some of these are actually actions where you'll be able to build additional quarantines zones. You'll be able to build uh, buildings that will get you victory points and resources throughout the game. And then eventually at the game, at the game's end, you'll be able to build, um, I guess, these little settlers, you know, carts in order to bring population back to Messina once the plague has been burnt out. So along with all that kind of fun, there is some asymmetry in the game. There is a basic side, a B side, and there's an advanced side. Basically, the advanced side is going to give you asymmetry versus the other players in the game. So the three different scoring separate abilities are just your alone for a particular resource. Now, what's really interesting about the game is how the game is set up. So it has this population dial. And based upon how the colors come up on that population dial, it's going to tell you where to put the different citizens on the board. It's going to tell you where to put the plague on the board. And you'll be doing that throughout the game until the final round where historically the plague has now been burnt out and all the people can come back, which is kind of fun. But basically throughout the game, it's primarily a worker placement game that's going to activate either your estate or going to give you a special ability throughout the game. This is kind of surprisingly a fun worker placement game, but being that it's a standard worker placement game and your estate is your estate alone, there is very, very little interaction with other players in this game. It's kind of odd. And the plague itself doesn't really spread. You add new plague to the board, but after we've all played Pandemic endless numbers of times and variations, the plague doesn't spread. It just, it just you know, drops on spots and you hopefully get fire so you can knock it out. If you don't and you go to a spot that there is plague, you're going to pick up rats. And rats are going to bring you down on one of the tracks and it's going to score you negative points throughout the game. But the, the plague is not dynamic. The interaction is not dynamic. So I'm not really sure why there are other players in this game. There is a single player AI mode in this game. I have not played it, but having played this game a couple of times now at barrier player count, except for the solo mode, which again, it seems to make sense that this is probably best as a solo game. Because again, all the AI does is what other players do and dropping lieutenants out and stopping you from going to certain spots. 
it doesn't really do anything else more than that, more or less, and neither do other players in the game. So you want to max out your tracks as much as possible because player turn order is based upon different tracks in the game. And of course, they're going to score you victory points. You have your special goals to score you victory points. Burning out plague scores you victory points. Repopulating certain city town tiles are going to score you a lot of victory points. And overall, it's a fun game. But honestly, it's probably better at a solo game. I can't vouch for it because I have not played at the solo level yet. But it's a, it's a game that's not as dynamic as any of his other Vladimir Suchi games. And I'm kind of surprised by this. And so for me, for this game, it gets a light play. Uh, if you're, you know, if, if other people are recommending to play it, if it's playing on the table, I think you'll enjoy some of the interactions as far as your own player board is concerned. But the worker placement elements on the city board are very dry, very basic, not really challenging. You don't, you, you know, your, your pawns, your meeples don't catch the plague as they move through the town. And pretty much everyone is able to go through quarantine and come out the other side. So it's, there's just, no, there's nothing dynamic to it. When you play clinic, there's a lot of, you know, challenges as far as the people getting sicker. This is not really a thing. And with other worker placement games, like it's just very dynamic and it's, it's more like just taking the spots, like spots, you know, like an agricola, they gear up and they, they're worth more, they're worth less, or the, the city's under peril. You never really feel the theme here. You're just playing a very basic worker placement game. It doesn't feel like the city or the people are under any major threat. And it's just a very mechanical game. And it could have literally been any other theme. There's nothing about this game that speaks to any of those elements. So again, it's a light play because Suchi knows his mechanics. But as far as the theme is concerned, as far as a work replacement game is concerned, I've played better games in other areas. Yeah, I'm not surprised, like looking at it. It didn't capture my attention uh, the way some of his other games have. Although I'm not as huge of a fan of his as you are. Mm -hmm. Um, How would you say it compares to Praga? Because that game kind of let me down. It's somewhat similar in the fact that you really don't have a lot of interaction with other players. Yeah, you can spin that dial a little more dynamically, so maybe it kind of messes with other players, and maybe you can take spots on the board, but Praga has a lot more interaction than this game. This game has very little interaction, and really it's just a matter of turn order. So, you know, between rounds, your workers kind of go to sleep. So you can actually land on their spot and take their action before they wake up. That's kind of cool of an idea, but primarily you want to rush to get the other two workers, you know, available for you to kind of play onto the game. But otherwise, it's 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 just so undynamic. It's just so unthematic. Uh, at least Praga, there was a lot of effort graphically and some of the mechanic designs as far as putting that wheel together. And I mean, that game is the opposite of this. That game plays better at a higher player count because the city tiles are better when they're in competition. If you play that game at two or three players, it's kind of lousy. You want to play the max player count. This one's probably best as a solo game where you're just trying to beat your score. All right, so that's Messina 1347. All right, everyone, that's everything that's hitting our table. Anthony, now let's get on to our feature review. Our feature review, of course, is the latest and the greatest, or unfortunately, 
in this particular case, the worst <laughs> rule books of all time. Yes, these are bad rule books, friends. The the ones <laughs> that we we get angry at, the ones that get thrown across the room, the ones that get replaced by videos, hopefully, if they exist. Um, so we're going to run through these and try to give you a sense of why they're bad, uh, and hopefully you've not experienced them. The Some of these are oldies that you've probably heard of. Some of them are not as old or might be a little more niche, but... And you know what? If you have a bad rule book that we didn't talk about, it is absolutely valid. It just means we have not personally experienced it, but you should send it in. We'll have a supplement later on of, of really bad rule books, according to the listeners. So let's kick things off with number 10. I We had a, a listener mention Vlada Shavatul on Facebook earlier, and Vlada is one of those designers that people either love his rule books or they hate him. And the rule books tend to be overly complicated. And the reason for that, I think, is just like that specific sense of humor that Vlada has when writing the rules. So Mage Knight is a game that has a very convoluted and not even like, it's just like it clicks for a certain type of mindset. And for those it doesn't click with, it doesn't make any sense, right? It doesn't make any sense to me. I've never been able to like relearn the rules to Mage Knight with the rule book. I've only attempted to read it two or three times and I gave up and now I just watch videos if I need to like refresh on that. Star Trek Frontiers gets a honorable mention because it's basically the same game and Adrian Parks didn't really rewrite the rules as much as I would have hoped he would uh, in, in adapting the game to Star Trek because the game certainly could have used a nice rules rewrite. It's it's complex, but it's not like the most complex game. And if Vitalis Serda can write rule books that are accessible and make sense. You know, it might be 30 pages, but it makes sense. Then so can anybody else. Right. Um, next up, we have one that again, might be controversial. Some people like these. I've always found them very frustrating and I, I had an experience with this over the weekend, so I had to include it. It's fantasy flights, LCG rule books. So if you go back to the original LCGs. You got Lord of the Rings LCG. That rule book's like 30 pages long. It's convoluted. It over over explains so many things. And it tries to cover so many potential bases for future expansions that it just it spins you in a circle. And then you come all the way up to now, and the way they do it is they have a like a learn to play rule book that includes like 30% of the rules, and then a rules reference that includes potentially everything else that you need to include then you have constantly flipping back and forth I me mean, like we have one question which book is it in i almost never can find what i what my questions are in a fantasy flight rule book i usually end up having to go and look it up because it, it drives me crazy so fantasy flight rule books again some people love them i don't like the way they split up all the information and make you jump back and forth. If you're going to do it that way, if you're going to be that granular, then go the, go the GMT route and just have a really detailed rule book that's 30 pages long. I'm fine with that. The quick rules combined with the separate rules reference, and not a fan. Um, next up, we have Too Many Bones. So this is one, like, I put this out there and a bunch of people referenced this game in particular. And... My initial play of Too Many Bones, I was taught the game by somebody else. 
But I will say, I didn't understand half of what they were trying to tell me. The game is complex, right? Like a little more complex than it needs to be. Um, so Too Many Bones has a pretty... I don't know. The way the rulebook is laid out, there's a lot of like separate sections breaking things down, but you don't always have the specific examples to walk you through each of those specific things that it's breaking down. And then the, the actual order in which the information is presented is not necessarily the order in which you need that information when you play the game. So you end up flipping back and forth, forward and back, back and forth a bunch. And then there's a, at the very end of the rulebook, you have like that live battle section that goes through like, well, this is what it actually looks like, but that's all the information that should have been broken up and given as examples throughout the rule book in one very dense section at the end. So like actually reading this thing, you don't learn the game and then referencing it. It's hard to find the thing you need to know <laughs> to actually know where you're going. So it, it does cause problems in that way. Um, another one that people gave us uh, references to as just being like a terrible rule book that nobody can parse. And number seven is space Hulk death angel card game. This is a fantasy flight game from about 10 years ago, or maybe a little longer, small rule book, narrow, like one of those little tuck boxes, but the game, the rules themselves kind of flip back and forth. They're not actually presented in the order that you need them. So you have kind of the, the various phases of the game, there's the objective of the game, playing the game, and then the phases. And then it goes into a section of like other rules that it breaks down. It kind of does that similar thing, again, complaining about Fantasy Flight, of separating the actual things you need to do in the game from the basic functions of the game. So you're constantly having to flip back and forth and then not telling you where to go to find that information. So you end up having to reread the whole thing multiple times. And while it <clears throat> while it is a narrow rule book, it is 32 pages long. So there's just a lot of information buried in there. Um, not a lot of visual representations either. So you can go through several pages and not see a photo or visual representation of what you're actually trying to do. Never a good sign. Number six is Power Grid. Power Grid, its original rule book is notoriously bad. Uh, the rules are kind of broken up throughout different sections. So if you're trying to look something up, it's not always in the section that makes sense for it to be in. Um, it could be a single sentence buried in one paragraph on page four related to the power plant auction, which is discussed on page three. So you often, when you had a question about the rules in Power Grid, at least early on, now you could just Google it pretty quickly, but at least early on, you would have to reread large sections to find that information. It's no good. It's no good. They've since re-released the rules, the recharged rules, um, which tweak them a little bit. But they're also a little bit clearer. So this one's a bit of a cheat in the sense that the game, you can get better rules for it. And if you buy the newest edition, it comes with the better rules. But uh, the original rules were notoriously bad. Most people don't know them because they haven't had to read them. A lot of people get taught this game by other people. But it's still, like, if you actually go through it or if you have a question, good luck. Uh, number five on the list is it's it's kind of a cheat in the sense that this one was a Kickstarter game that came out I don't know, five years ago. Um, I backed it, so I put it on the list. Martians, A Story of Civilization. 
and it came in uh and the the translation itself wasn't great so it's a it's a polish game so the original rules were in polish and the game the rules were translated in some form and then the information wasn't fully conveyed through and then that wasn't really polished up or cleaned up in the final version that actually shipped to people so it's one of those games this happens on kickstarter a lot and we could have probably done a top 10 of just bad kickstarter rule books but in the end we only have a couple from kickstarter on here um where the rules are made and they print them and they send them out and then everybody looks at them and they're like, Oh, these are bad. And they're like, Oh, okay, well we'll rewrite them. And they might even do that, but then you don't have them, right? They either get re-released in a future Kickstarter or you have to print them out personally. And, and that's, that's no fun. So this is one of those games that I struggled to get through the rules on multiple times. And it just never really clicked. Um, I did eventually get the game played. It's not, that great of a game it's a fairly ho-hum worker placement game especially because it came out the same year as terraforming mars <laughs> so as a martian game not great uh it just didn't hold up to the, uh, the other games that released that year but it the rules as well were like such a huge barrier and so many people who backed this were very disappointed by that uh next up on the list we have at number four Kind of a catch-all, similar to the Fantasy Flight one, of just Phil Eklund games. So, you know, and not to pick on any one person necessarily. This is, and this is a decision that Phil Eklund has made in his games, like in how to present the rules. And it's changed a little bit in recent games. But if you look at some of those older rule books, Pax Perfuriana is notoriously hard to get through. Uh, Pax Renaissance is difficult. High Frontier is difficult. Bios Megafauna. And there's several reasons for that. One, they get very, very granular with the information. Two, they're often filled with like additional information that you don't really need to play the game. So like context or flavor text or footnotes or essays that kind of just like water everything down. The games are complex anyways, and the rules don't do anything to break down that complexity and make it palatable right it's it's com it's complexity for the sake of complexity which i'm never a fan of personally um several of these games are very good you know let let's ignore all the nonsense of phil Eklund and the problems that are there with his philosophy and in, in gaming but s several of these games are good it's just they're so dense and they're hard to get through the rules in and we've even seen like games that have come out of Sierra Madre and be reprinted elsewhere with different rule sets have suddenly taken off because they're more accessible all of a sudden, right? That's not ideal, right? So we got games like John Company um, and Pax Pamir. These are both games by Cole Worley that were published by Sierra Madre. Those rule books were not good. The Pax Pamir second edition rule book, it's perfectly fine. It's not amazing, but it's perfectly fine. And I haven't seen the new version of John Company, but I'm sure it's better. So if you love these games, if you get through the rulebook, awesome. But again, many people struggle, including myself. Um, next up on the list, we have at number three, Batman Gotham City Chronicles. This was the Batman re-implementation of uh, the Conan game from Monolith. And I did not learn the rules to... Conan 
we played that at uh, Dexcon and somebody taught it to me. And I was like, this game's amazing. And so when Batman went up on Kickstarter, I was like, I'm in 100%. Get me in that game. And I backed it for all the monies. I gave them all the monies. I have seven boxes of stuff in the basement. The game came in. I went to learn the rules. And you know what? They're terrible. <laughs> They're really bad. Um, it's very long. Uh, basic things like movement, which in a grid-based game where you're moving characters around, I know movement's a little complex, but it shouldn't be like eight pages long. right? If I have a question about how to move a character or like what line of sight constitutes, I shouldn't have to read through seven to eight pages again to figure out where they need to go. It's the game is not that complex when you break it down and actually play it, but the rules make it seem like the most complex game that's ever been built in the history of board games. It's, you know, grammatically, it's fine. You could read it. It's just not fun to read. And there's so much there. It's so dense. And that's not even adding in all the additional rule books that come in. If you want to play with the extra modules and the expansions and all the other stuff, it just drags and drags and drags. So I've never actually gotten this game out with like a full group of people successfully and then we'll get through the rules and teach it and have us all have a good time because we just get bogged down by all the nonsense now i haven't actually read like they had a, a season two of this and i think the rules got updated a little bit i haven't read those because i was absolutely not going to give them more money after having a bad experience with the first 300 boxes but the gotham city chronicles that was a rough one uh number two on the list is myth first edition myth was borderline unplayable <laughs> with the original rules they just did they literally didn't tell you what to do and so we played this game we reviewed it uh, like eight years ago and we enjoyed it even we had fun with it with whatever version of the rules i came up with based on what i read but it was a big 40 50 page rule book and had dozens and dozens of examples it was nicely laid out it was pretty to look at but you could read through that whole thing and be like, I still don't understand what I'm doing. Uh, you know, Chris, you described it as the you know big old box of fun because it was like a bunch of toys in a box and we just figured out how to play with them. Okay. <laughs> it just, it didn't work. Um, there is a second edition of those rules that got released to further Kickstarter backers and people who backed the first one before the company went under. Um, I do have those. I have not gone back and played with them. So I don't know if the game works now with the right rules, uh, but it it was it was a challenge for sure. And then number one on our list of worst rule books is probably one of the ones that a lot of people think of first. Robinson Crusoe uh, from Portal Games, and honestly, a lot of Portal Games rule books are terrible. We could have mentioned a few here. Um, Cry Havoc was particularly bad. The original rule books for Niroshima Hex were not very good. First Martians, which is based on Robinson Crusoe, really, really bad. Like, almost impossible to learn how to play that game from the rule book. Robinson Crusoe was not much better. This is a game that's based, it's scenario-based, so you need to be able to understand a broad swath of basic rules before you can sit down and play it. And the rule book does not help you do that. So... Um, it was missing a lot of information. There were certain pieces that just weren't there that you needed to know. Other things were placed in different locations in the rule book. The language was sometimes unclear. So it would tell you technically what to do, but it would say it in a vague way. So you weren't always sure what it meant. And even the second edition rule book, 
which came out, I think, four or five years ago. Much, much better, but still not good, <laughs> right? It was, it got like to a basic level of okay. But that one, thankfully, came with a Watch It Played video where Rodney Smith went through and told you how to play the game. You don't have to read the rule book anymore. Um, I'm hoping in the newest edition that they did on GameFound recently, they finally get this rulebook down. Like, I hope they hired somebody like Paul Grogan and they got it fixed. But Robinson Crusoe, for such a beautiful, fantastic story-driven game with all these amazing scenarios you can go through, to not be able to get the rules quite right really, really undermines that game a lot. So, there you go. Ten worst rulebooks of all time. All right, everyone. So that's everything for this week. Until next time, this is Chris. Hey, it's Anthony. And we'll save you all a seat at the table. Take care, everyone. Bye. See ya.